0: Well, in September of uh, 1939, World War II began with Germany's invasion of Poland. Uh, Germany, at that time under the, the rule of Adolf Hitler, was, was just dead set on expanding his rule and destroying anyone that did not fit within his vision, his framework for what carries value and worth. Uh, Two years later, 1941, America was thrust into the war after the attack on Pearl Harbor. And for the next four years, life in America changed drastically as virtually virtually everyone joined the war effort in one way or another. Everyone contributed. Uh, There was an attitude of kind of this all hands on deck to defeat this enemy that was seeking to rule and dominate the world. And had not the Allies prevailed... Think about this. The world in which we live today would be very different, wouldn't it? Had, the, had not the allies prevailed, the Jewish people who were being exterminated during Hitler's tyrannical rule would, would look very different today. Life for them was almost being snuffed out. Had the outcome of that war been different than what it was, life today for Americans would look drastically different. It might even be safe to say that Many of us, even in this room, would not be here. You see, what, what rules us matters. And so, what rules you? What rules you? The well-known Scottish minister, Oswald Chambers, he once said this. He says, we have to recognize that sin is a fact, not a defect. Sin is red-handed mutiny against God. Either God or sin must die in my life. If sin rules in me, God's life in me will be killed. If God rules in me, sin in me will be killed. I can really think of no better quote to introduce the passage we have before us this morning than what Oswald Chambers said. And as one pastor I've heard once say, he says, whatever we build our life on will be what drives us and enslaves us. So the question we're going to come face to face with today from this text is who rules over you? Chambers said it's going to be either God or it's going to be sin. There is no middle ground. One ruler is going to lead you into greater joy, the greatest joy you will ever know. Another ruler is going to chew you up and spit you out. It will lead you into death and destruction and, 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 and disease with false promises of, of happiness. You are either under the reign and rule of God or you will be under the reign and rule of sin. And so again, I ask, who's ruling you? Who's your master? In this second chapter of Judges, we see, we see the results of Israel's disobedience and the consequences that come as sin slowly and methodically destroys them and their relationship with God. Uh, in this text, we see the, the thorns and the snares that come with sin. And yet through it all, we are still going to see a God who is repeatedly faithful, despite man's repeated unfaithfulness. In looking at, at Israel's disobedience, and looking at Israel's unfaithfulness, we see our own. In looking at Israel's failure to truly repent, we see even our own attempts to manipulate God through our own self-righteous acts. What we see from the text before us this morning is is God's call to us to behold him and his covenant faithfulness. And in response to that, to, to zealously war against sin, which is then going to result in life and peace and joy and restored relationship with our God. And so since God has repeatedly proven his covenant faithfulness to us, we must then put Sin to death and walk in obedience. And so how do we do that? How do we walk in obedience? How do we put sin to death? How do we see the destructiveness of sin and the joy then that comes from glad obedience to God? And so what I want to do this morning is from the text, we're going to observe three failures of God's people. Three things Israel failed to do which would have guarded them from falling away from God. Three things then that we must learn from so as to guard our hearts and minds from the destructiveness and the consequences that sin brings so as to walk in the fullness of life and joy. And so number one, first thing we're going to see, to guard our heart and mind from the deceitfulness and destructiveness of sin, we must, you must remind yourself of God's covenant faithfulness and deliverance. So you take a look at what's taking place in verse 1 of Judges 2. It says, Now, now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum. And he said, I, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. So we have, have, have happening here in, in, in verse 1 what's called a theophany. Uh, it's it's a, visible, uh, a visible appearance of God bringing about this divine revelation. Now, now many would actually argue that this is the the pre-incarnate, this this angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ, the second member of the Trinity, appearing here and speaking to the people of God. And and we know, though, that this is God because of the message that's being brought and how it's communicated. This angel of the Lord says, I brought you up from Egypt, right? But, But what we want to key in on here is the message itself. God here is coming to his people who have failed, Who have not obeyed and is reminding the people of who he is and what he has done for them. These were a a people who were at one point enslaved. People who are homeless, really. a People who are without hope. And God, in his mercy, heard their their cries for deliverance. Heard their cries for salvation. Heard their cries for freedom and rescue. And came and rescued them through miraculous and mighty ways. He, he delivered them from the hands of their oppressors. He led them then through the, the Red Sea by parting the waters in two so they could walk safely across as the enemy was coming after them to, to, to pull them back into slavery, bring them back under their oppression and their rule. God destroyed their enemies. All those who were seeking to rule over them. God provided for them he provided food for them in the wilderness water for them when they needed it he provided protection for them and now this people are being led then into a land that God promised to give them a land that was prosperous and God was driving out all those who were inhabiting the land he was doing all of it he was a God who was faithfully providing and delivering and rescuing and and all he was calling on them to do was to walk in obedience walk in in obedience. Trust me. Follow me. And yet we know how this text is going to unfold. The the people don't walk in obedience. They, They forget God and instead they're turning their attention and turning their gaze to the things of this world. It's not as if they are no longer looking for someone or something to satisfy them or, or that they're no longer looking for someone or something to complete them or to make sense of their lives. That desire did not change within them. Just as within you and, and me, that desire never changes or, or, or we never drift away from it. We're always on the search for meaning and for hope and for what gives our, our life purpose and identity But the moment that we begin to take our eyes off of our great God as the answer to the deepest question of the soul, we immediately begin to look elsewhere to find that solution. So this ultimately is what sin is. It's, It's us making anything other than God ultimate. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit God, says as much. He says, sin isn't only doing bad things. It is more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things sin is building your life and meaning on anything even a very good thing more than on god see we we drift into sin when we fail to remind ourselves of the faithfulness of god and who he is and that there is no one else in all of the universe who can truly deliver and give us give me the peace and the joy and the purpose and the life and the joy that i long for and, and so here's where we need to pause and ask the question, what good things, what good things have you made ultimate things? Or, or what good things are you most tempted to make ultimate things in your life? Maybe even another way of, of getting us to, of, of thinking through this is what are the current modern day idols that we face today? And we could, we could add a list here, right? Let me just list a, a few that I'm sure are coming to your mind right now. The modern day idols of our culture. Well, well materialism. Materialism would be something near the top of that list for sure, right? A desire to own more, right? I'll be happy if I just have more of what I already have. Right? Materialism or comfort maybe. Comfort is often an idol of the heart, right? We we don't want to risk things that, that are out of our control. And so comfort then becomes this idol that, that must be closely guarded. Our careers are often the things which drive us and the things that we protect most. Our reputation, right? What we, what we present to the world of ourselves is often an idol. Or, or how we want the world to perceive our self-perception, right? Like the, the, the rise of social media in the, in, in the past decade has only poured gasoline on that flame, right? Right? In the age now of the influencer, where now all of a sudden we're being told we have to brand ourselves, right? We have to create this, this image of what we desire to be that maybe even doesn't necessarily line up with reality, but it's our perception of what we want the world to perceive us as. And so, so reputation becomes an idol. I've read one author recently who believes maybe just that identity alone is the most rampant modern day idol facing us today. And it's possibly maybe what drives all of our decision-making and what we seek after, our identity. Who are we, right? We're desiring this identity which gives us this, this meaning, this impact in the world, right? I want to have a legacy. I want to leave something behind. This is who I am. And so we, we chase after this, this idol of our identity. What gives us that meaning, that impact in the world? Simon uh, Sinek, he's a, a, a business leader he's a consultant. he works with a lot of companies to help them kind of work through the, the changing culture and fabric of, of, of our day, and he works with also a lot of young people who are just coming out of college and entering into the, the workforce and and he said on multiple occasions as he sits down with this, this young generation, he says this that they're struggling entering the workforce today and, and they're struggling to find a job or, or to stay at a job that satisfies them. Because because he says this, this young generation that's entering the workforce is, is being driven by this desire, this insatiable desire that they have to make an impact. They have to make an impact. And he'll even pause and say whatever that even means, right? That they have to make an impact. And so he says he sits down with all these young people entering into workforce that are are at a job for three months, six months, not even a year, and then they're moving on. He's saying, why are you moving? Why are you uh, coming in and out so often of all these jobs? And and he says, like, their response is, like, if they can't find a job, land that job that has the perfect position, that has the perfect hours, the perfect coworkers, the perfect salary, that allows them then to have that freedom to believe in their mind that they're they're making this, this worldly impact this worldwide impact, then they're like, if if I haven't found it in three months, I'm going to the next one. And and he's like, what's happening is this this generation is is in this continual cycle of unhappiness because they're feeling worthless until they find that unicorn, that that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that they think this is what will give my life meaning and purpose. I have to make an impact. That's idolatry. They're, They're chasing the idol of identity apart from their creator. See, see we're meant to find that meaning. So it's not that that desire within us is is wrong. We're meant to find meaning. That purpose, though, that identity is found in glad relationship with our creator who gives us our value. A creator who gives us our worth as image bearers of, of God as we live on mission to make much of him. There's our impact. It's when we forget it's when we drift away from that desire that, that's, that's, that's found in our career that, that we place it somewhere else and then we find quickly that nothing else in this world is going to satisfy that. And that's the essence of sin. It's making good things, ultimate things. And they will eventually leave you with, with nothing because they were never meant to fulfill you. And so how do we guard ourselves from The destructiveness of sin. Well, we remind ourselves, right, over and over again of God's covenant faithfulness and deliverance. He's where I find our hope. He's where I find my identity. This is honestly even then the protection we find within the church as we covenant together to remind ourselves of who God is. And, and what he has done. The songs that we've sung this morning, the songs that we sang out loud together with one voice, we sang to our God in praise, but at the same time, we're singing them to one another to remind ourselves of the truth of what they're revealing about our God. We're saying, in essence, as one body coming together, lifting our voices, don't forget what we're saying. Don't forget the truth of what we are singing out. The time that we just spent just a few moments ago around the Lord's table this morning was something that Jesus instituted so that we would remind ourselves of where our redemption and deliverance come from. Community groups here in the life of our church are scattered throughout the week. They're not not just there just to to, to fill up our schedule. They're intended to help guard us from drifting into sin as we share life together through the highs and lows of life by reminding one another, here's where our hope is, reminding one another this is the gospel. Don't stray from it membership in, in the local church isn't something that's been created just to help boost internal numbers. But membership, is a, it's a commitment. It's, it's a promise that you're making with other brothers and sisters in this, 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 this church here to say, I'm committed to this body's growth and holiness. And I want you committed to mine. Right? I, want, I want us all growing together as by God's grace we pursue Christlikeness together. And so we we remind ourselves of who God is, his faithfulness, his deliverance. It's a way in which we guard our hearts from the deceitfulness of sin. But secondly, to guard our hearts, we must also learn from sin's consequences. Pick it up in in verses 2 and 3. And so it it goes on. He says, "And, And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. You know, God had given clear commands to Israel. And so he says here, I, listen, I covenanted with you. And so don't enter into any other covenant with any other nation, and, and with their false gods. right? What, what we're hearing in the language here is really this, this picture of marriage. right? That God had entered into this intimate relationship with his people and says, I've covenanted with you, you're covenanting with me. Don't break this covenant by, by, by drifting into relationship with other nations, other false gods. See, the image here that, that we're getting from this is that when we, when we drift away from God, When we are are in sin, we are committing spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery. See, God is using and uses striking language to identify here Israel's unfaithfulness to their covenant with God. I mean, we'll get here in just a, a couple of weeks, but in the same chapter, Judges 2, just skim down to verse 17 and look at how the author here describes Israel's unfaithfulness to their God. It says they did not listen to their judges for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. That's striking language. That's that's in God's word. See, most of us in this room have at least to some degree observed the wreckage that comes to a marriage when when there's infidelity and unfaithfulness. Whether you've observed it in, in the marriage of a close friend or the marriage of someone within your family. Or at the very least that we've, we've witnessed it or seen it in the news when famous marriages, well-known marriages implode because of unfaithfulness. Sadly, maybe even some of you in this room this morning have experienced the deep pain and trauma yourself from being betrayed in that way. Now, I don't bring this up to discourage us. But, but do you feel the heaviness and the weightiness in this room just by talking about this topic, right? Do you feel like, th- like this, is, this is weighty? There's, there's a, even a bit of tension and, and just a little bit of uncomfortableness in the room right now as so you're maybe even thinking through how you've seen unfaithfulness, infidelity, just destroy a relationship. And that's because we feel that weightiness because unfaithfulness to a spouse is devastating. It's devastating. And so what I have to ask us here is do we view our sin, our unfaithfulness to God, our disobedience with that same level of intensity? Do we see our sin in that way? That, that when we sin, when we make good things ultimate, we are, as, as God says in Judges, that we are whoring after other gods. Do you see your sin that way? Sin is the fracturing of relationship every single time. It is unfaithfulness to a holy God. It is serious. It's why we see God say at the end of verse 2, he's, he looks at the people and says, what have you done? What is this you have done? You, you know where we he, first hear that question asked. It's in Genesis 3. What's taking place in Genesis 3? It's the dismantling of all of God's creation through Adam and Eve's disobedience of God. They eat eat the fruit that they were commanded to avoid. In doing so, what they were saying is that we're not trusting God, that he is for our ultimate good. We're looking elsewhere. We're making something else ultimate over him. And the moment that they sin, shame, and guilt, and fear is all ushered in. Corruption, and decay, and hiding all takes place in that moment. For the first time in, in, in human existence, they're running away from God, not to him. And God calls to them in the garden, calls for them, confess what they have done. And he says in Genesis three thirteen that same question, what is this that you have done? See, I believe those questions are in scripture, not because God is surprised, not because he was caught off in that moment, caught off guard. Not caught or surprised by man's wickedness, but I believe they're there to call on us to consider the consequences and the devastation that sin brings. That when we are unfaithful to a holy God, to pause for a moment, what is this that I have done? When we were house training our dog, when she was just a puppy, there were many times when she wasn't quite getting outside quick enough, right, to, to, to do her business. So for those first few weeks, I had to take her outside just about every 30 minutes or so because we learned very quickly that if she went outside and if she came back in and just drank something, the, the, the clock's ticking. Right? Um, and, and so I had to get her out aside often, often, because I, there are several times when I'm walking down the hallway only to step in something wet on the floor in, in my socks, right? Um, and so I'd, I'd get the dog as like a little eight-week, ten-week-old puppy, and I'd bring her over and I'd scold her, and, and I would say, What is this? Right? Look at this dog. What did you just do? Now, of course, the, the dog has no idea what I'm saying. She knew I was up, upset. So I wanted her to know, and for some reason I had to feel like I had to talk to her about that. But what is this you have done? As parents, as parents, when we discipline our children, right, oftentimes we'll send them to the, their room for a few moments, right, to, to think over. Think over what you've done. Why do we do that? Why do we do that as parents? Because we, we do that because we want them to feel, even for hopefully a brief amount of time, but we want them to feel the weight of their actions, we want them to feel the weight of, of their disobedience. We, we don't want to just skim past it. We don't want to just blow past it as if it's not a big deal, especially if it is a big deal. Like we want them to, to feel that. We want them to understand the consequences of their poor decisions so that they will learn from it, right? We, in, our, in our minds as parents, we're hoping our children are sitting in a room saying, here's what I did. As they're thinking through, I did this, this is how I responded or acted or what I said, this is the result of what it brought about. Okay, I am purposing now to not do that anymore, right? That's what we're hoping, best case scenario, right? Like you want, that's learning, right? I made a mistake, here are the consequences. I don't wanna do this anymore, right? Sin is always going to bear consequences in our lives and oftentimes it's gonna bear consequences in the lives of, of others. Sin, its effects spread well beyond just ourselves. Israel's unfaithfulness brought about the fruit of what they were chasing after. In verse 3, God is ultimately saying, listen, if the false gods of the nations are, are what you want, if the world is what you want, okay, you have broken covenant with me. Okay, I'm not driving them out anymore. If this is what you want, then this is what you're going to get. And you're going to soon realize, my people, that, that, that this sin This chasing after false gods and nations, it's going to become a thorn. It's become an irritation in your side. These false gods are going to become a snare to you. They will take you further down than you ever wanted to go or ever dared dream. Meaning you're going to soon realize the emptiness of what they provide, which is nothing. It's why we learn from these couple of verses how to treat sin. In verse two, God had commanded the people, said, so I command you, go into these areas as I'm driving them out and break down their altars. All right? so here's what God was saying to his people. When, when I'm driving out the nations, you break down their altars. He's saying, you are to be violent against sin. You're to be violent against anything that robs you of joy found in me. Put sin to death, put it to death. Or as John Owen once said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Since sin will radically destroy you, we must be radical in destroying it. So brothers and sisters, let me just call on you here for a moment. If there is hidden sin in your life, maybe some in here are thinking, I've been hiding this sin for years, and you've been suffering the consequences of it for years. Can I, as much as I can lovingly um, exhort you, let me invite you as well. Come out of hiding. Come out of hiding and find the freedom that God brings. Don't hide anymore. Come, let us war together and and put sin to death. Let, let us as pastors serve, serve you in this way. Let your community groups serve you in this way by coming out of hiding, expose it for what it is and seek to put it to death. Let a trusted brother or sister come alongside of you and serve you in this way by, by serving you with grace and with humility as they bear with you and, and help you look to Christ who gives us the power and the deliverance over sin. Aaron read from, from Romans 6 just a, a, a little bit ago as we were walking into communion about the fact that sin no longer has dominion over you. And yet so often we as believers live and act and walk as if it does. No, Christ, through his life, his death, his resurrection, has defeated the power of sin, his dominion over our lives. We don't have to be uh, enslaved to it anymore. Act like we're enslaved to it. He set us free, and so don't walk and live as if you're enslaved to it. Don't be in hiding. Come out of the darkness and come into the light. Will it be painful at first? Yes, but will the, will the fruit of that bring life and joy? Yes, it will. Learn from sin's consequences. Learn from it. And then lastly, to guard our hearts, we see this in our text, that we need to repent and rest in the work God has already done. Verses 4 and 5 give us a picture of Israel's response to their sin. And yet, as Judges unfolds, we we quickly are going to learn that this was was temporary. This was not a grace-driven, spirit-directed repentance and turning. And Judges 2, 4, and 5 says, as, as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochum, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. The, the people here felt sorrow over the words that they had just heard, but it, but it wasn't a sorrow which led to true repentance. For as we're going to see, even next week in verse 11, it says that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord. Though they felt bad with what they had just heard, they, they soon forgot, and fortunately continued this downward spiral, chasing after false gods and idols. They were more concerned with worldly approval of them rather than God's approval and acceptance of them, and so to guard our hearts and our minds from the destructiveness of sin so as to walk in obedience, we must we must truly repent and rest in what God has done, which means there's a right way and a wrong way to repent. In Second Corinthians seven, Paul talks about this, this godly grief and what it produces, and what it contrasts with is this worldly grief and what it produces. Paul says in Second Corinthians 7:10, "For Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. When we read verses 4 and 5 of Judges 2, it seems as though there's grief, right? There's, they're weeping, they're crying, they're, they're lifting up their voices. It even says they sacrificed to the Lord. So what was false about it? What was fake about it? I would argue that it, it wasn't a godly grief. It was a worldly grief. And what I, was, what I would argue is that in that moment when they heard this charge against them, they just entered into autopilot. And they, and they began going through the rituals of what they thought was necessary to get God off their back. They were not grieved over the fact that their sin had fractured their relationship with God. They were not grieved over the, the consequences of what their sin would bring about. The false gods of the nations were what they wanted. It's very clear that's what they continue to pursue they loved their sin, which enslaved them more than they loved the God who had freed them from it. See, over time, the more, that we, the more that we play with sin, the more we flirt with sin, the deeper we go. The more we play with sin, the more we flirt with sin, the more callous and hardened our hearts become to it. It was Martin Luther, the great reformer, who once said, when our when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he says he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And there's a couple things to glean from that statement. One is well, we, we never outgrow our sinful hearts, right? Until Christ returns or takes us home, right? We, we will never outgrow our sinful hearts. It was John Calvin even who said that our, our hearts are these perpetual idol factories, We're churning one out, one after another, so there's always going to be the sin that needs to be repented of continually. That's what Luther's saying. It's the entire life is one of repentance. But a second thing to really glean from is that ongoing repentance keeps us sensitive to the destructive nature of sin. When we fail to acknowledge the evil of sin in our hearts, when we fail to confess, when we rationalize our wickedness, when we say it's really not a big deal, when we seek to justify it, when we begin to point the finger at other people and say, well, I'm not doing what they're doing. When we, when we begin to not look at, at, at how sinful we are, what happens is our hearts become more callous and hardened to that sin. It becomes less of a big deal. When we fail to repent, which is to turn from sin and turn in faith to God, or as one Bible dictionary would would define repentance as it's this change of attitude and action from sin toward obedience to God, that when we fail to do that, the more we become accustomed and familiar and comfortable with our sin. And so guarding our hearts from the destructiveness of sin and, and what it produces means acknowledging sin right away in our hearts confessing it, repenting, striving by grace through faith to walk in obedience. See, true repentance is going to result in transformation. True repentance is going to result in fruit in in your life, which is going to lead to joy and restoration with God. True repentance lets go of the things of this world as, as the rubbish that they are to cling to a greater treasure. True repentance doesn't look to rituals to save them. But true repentance looks to the work that God has done on our behalf. True repentance doesn't, it doesn't put on a show. It doesn't put on a show looking for affirmation from others. Do you see what I've done in response? Are you good with me now? Okay, then I'm good with myself. It doesn't put on a show looking for affirmation from others because of our self-righteous acts. See, Israel suffered the consequences of their sin because they did not guard their hearts. They failed to remember the faithfulness and the the deliverance of God from their enemies. They failed to learn from sin's consequences. And instead, they they grew more and more callous as they clung to the things of this world. They failed to truly repent and rest when God confronted them on it. They failed to repent and rest in the work of God, but rested more in their their rituals, rested more in their self-righteous acts of religion. And yet, though they failed... Though you and I will fail time time again, God is faithful. When we are faithless, he's faithful, right? Though, though you and I were at one point lost and dead in our sins because of God's great love for us, he sent his only son to purchase us from sin's enslavement. Because of God's love, Jesus came and died for us so that through faith, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we'd be restored back into this right relationship with our God, with our creator. Church, Jesus is the one we rest in. Though our hearts are, as the song says, prone to wander, through Christ alone we find redemption, peace. We find hope. Our salvation is not found in, in, in our self-righteous acts, anything that we can, we can muster up ourselves, but it's found through the perfect life the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Friend, if you're here this morning and you've never turned from your sin, which separates you from, from God, and instead you are sitting here resting in your self-righteousness, your, your good, de- right? You might be thinking, I'm here. Isn't that enough? That's, that's ritualistic worship. That's ritualistic re- that's, that, is, that is trying to manipulate God by saying, look at the good things I've done. Isn't that enough? Right? It, wherever you are, if you have not turned from your sin and rested completely by faith in Christ alone to find your life, your joy, your eternal salvation, the invitation to you this morning, the, we, we implore you this morning to come, be reconciled with God and find new life. Church, let us guard our hearts. Let us guard one another from the deceitfulness of sin. Let us walk in glad obedience and pursue Christ's likeness so that we would experience the freedom that comes from joyfully living underneath God's good reign and his good rule. So who's your master? Let's pray.